0: Would you join me in prayer, please? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this journey we have each and every year through a couple chapters of Romans that just reminds us of what we believe and why. And I just ask, Lord, you would continue to illumine our hearts and our minds to the knowledge of your grace as your people so that we would be such to our world around us. Take our minds now and think through them. Take my lips and speak through them. Take our wills and bend them to your own, and take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you and for your son, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. I'm sure that for those who know me, it comes to no surprise that my parents would say to me, Gene, you're a little too zealous. What, what they meant by that was my zeal was misguided. Kim asked me the other day, Well, when you were a little kid, what, you know, what, what were you anguished about? Because we were talking about this passage, this whole section of chapter 9. Paul's in anguish about his people. So Kim asked me, When you were a kid, what were you in anguish about? And I said, Why are the Washington senators so bad, dear God? <laughs> they were awful. First in war, first in peace, last in the American League, right? (laughs) You know, the Washington Deadskins, we called them when I was a kid. You know, they were awful. All the teams I liked, awful. Why, dear God? The Jews' zeal is misplaced. And what we're going to hear this morning, brothers and sisters, is sheer gospel for each and every one of us, to make sure our zeal is not misplaced. So turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 9, beginning with verse 30. We've been in chapter 9 the last couple of weeks where we have learned Paul's in anguish, as we're in anguish for those who don't know Christ, our family, our friends, our loved ones. And he reminded us that it's all initiated by God. First and foremost, we got that part, right? All right. Then there's always been a remnant. And so Paul is calling the church in Rome at this point to learn from his people, the Jews, whose zeal is misplaced. And what we discover in this passage is Paul's true heart desire to what faith isn't and what faith is. All right? So that's where we're taking. First, let's look at Paul's desire. If you go to chapter 10, verse 1, it's right there. Paul writes, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. This is an in-house conversation for Paul, and it is for us as well. It's vital for us to understand because he's not talking about rank pagans here. Israel had the Old Testament. They believed in God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They believed the God who created the world and everything in it. He gave his laws to Moses, who was the Redeemer and Savior of Israel. And prior to the writing of the New Testament, they were the sole possessors of God's written revelation. As God's chosen people, they had more spiritual light shed upon them than any people group in the entire human history. To them belong, as we learned in verse 4 of chapter 9, to them belonged, the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises. But it wasn't enough. They were not saved. Christ himself continually pronounced judgment on apostate Israel. Apostate meaning unbelieving, rejecting the revelation and going my way. That's what apostasy means. Even As he walked upon the cross with all the professional women mourning him who were weeping over him, he turned to them and said, Don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children, Luke 23-28. Jesus saw the nation as unbelieving and rejecting him. They had the Old Testament, but they had misrepresented its meaning and twisted its revelation into a system Of salvation by works. Verse 2, he says, But I bear witness, them witness, that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. It's a religious zeal, but no matter how vigorous and pious it is, it's worthless if it's not grounded in the truth of God. Paul goes on to explain specifically why Israel's knowledge is lacking in verse 3 of chapter 10. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. In other words, Israel had underestimated God's righteousness and overestimated their righteousness. Their ability to satisfy the righteous standard of his law. And they completely misunderstood their own depravity and their inability before a holy God. Therefore, they failed to humble themselves, like we saw in the parable today. Don't you love that parable that our Lord says? You know, who, like the publican who pounded his breast in horror over his own wretchedness and said, Have, Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Instead, the people of Israel were convinced that they were in right standing with God, of their own goodness and acceptability. They had a warped view of sin, they had a warped view of God's righteousness, and a warped view of their ability to attain salvation by their own efforts. Worse still, they had a severe misunderstanding of the cross of Christ. They didn't understand why their zeal was misguided and twisted. So, Paul earlier tells us what faith isn't first. What it isn't is what the Jews are doing in the salvation by works. Notice in verse 32, he says of chapter 9, why? Because they did not perceive it by faith, but as if it were based on works. It's our natural default setting, brothers and sisters, to do works. We want to count, right? And yet, that's not God's economy. All other religions are based on performance. You live a particular way to please the divine, and you're accepted by that divine. And so Paul is articulating to the church in Rome in approximately 57 AD, writing from Corinth, that in rejecting Christ, they remain in a works-righteous religion. And that's tragic. It's tragic then, and it's tragic now. Many of our friends and loved ones are caught on that performance wheel, and they lack assurance, and they lack hope. To be righteous is to be in right standing before God, that God is okay with us. And to say, I can do it on my own, Lord. Jesus says, okay, if you want to do that in the Sermon on the Mount, he says in Matthew 5, 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Think of it this way. If you were to prepare an omelet with five good eggs and one of those eggs were rotten, you couldn't serve that up to your guests, could you? Even less, can we serve up our lives to God with many, may have some good things in them, some of them which are good and yet are filled with deeds and thoughts that are rotten and expect them to be acceptable to God? Is any of us perfect for a holy God? James 2.10 states, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. So if we want to be right with God, if we want to experience and walk with God, to experience heaven on earth because his kingdom is here. And when we die, enter into his presence. We don't do it by works. We can't do it by works. God's standard is complete obedience to him in every moment of the day, and we all fall short of it. And missing that pivotal point was a disaster in Israel's theology, and it distorted their understanding of sin distorted their understanding of Christ, distorted their understanding of salvation because they sought to manufacture their own righteousness instead of relying upon Christ's righteousness for them. So Paul Paul says in verse 4 of chapter 10, for Christ is the end of the law for everyone who believes. Their faith was firmly focused on their own works, not the completed work of Christ. And despite all that revelation God had given them, despite the incarnation of the Son of God himself, they were not saved. Israel's rejection of the Messiah was so wrenching at the heart of Paul. As he says in chapter uh, chapter 9, verse 3, for I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. He is in anguish over this situation. But then we learn what faith is through the Gentiles of all people, right? He writes in verse 3, For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. So how can we get God's righteousness? Well, he tells us, verse 30, What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness that is by faith. There it is. It's by faith. Faith is trusting in Jesus Christ and his work upon the cross alone for our salvation. And the Gentiles, upon hearing this good news that Jesus had died for them on the cross, had responded in great numbers across the Roman Empire. They hadn't seen him. They hadn't heard him. They saw the eyewitnesses. They listened to them, and they responded, and they believed. By faith, alone, in Christ, alone, they had salvation. Think of it this way. Here's a chair, right? I'll put my philosopher's hat on. Do you believe this chair exists? yes right okay do you believe that chair can hold me okay let's say that that chair represents Jesus Christ the problem is I'm not sitting in it because I don't trust it yet and it's not until I sit in it do I really trust it watch it fall you know it's not gonna fall right Because you trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. And you have it. It's not based on my performance. It's based on his performance. And therefore, I get up and I live to be a blessing to my community, a blessing to my family, a blessing to everyone I have. And I'm clothed in his righteousness, the Bible teaches us. It's a gift that he gives us. Paul writes in Ephesians 2, for by grace you've been saved. Sheer grace, you've been saved by faith. And this is not, not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. It's important that we understand that. In my early life, I didn't believe that. I believe he existed and could help me. I prayed that he'd help the Washington Senators win a ball game. They didn't. I didn't have eternal life because I was trusting in my own works for salvation. I was trusting in myself. So I must transfer my trust to him and his work upon the cross, just like this chair, and his atoning work. And notice, that work is fulfilled, Paul writes. Verse 4 of chapter 10, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. That's what it is, right there, trusting in his work and his alone. And therefore, I live. He lived perfectly. Faith is the hand of a beggar reaching out to receive the gift of a king. Think of it that way. It's a free gift. You can't earn it. You don't deserve it. And Paul's reminding us it's what it is. It's by faith. We have salvation. Imagine if your spouse bought you a wonderful gift you'd always wanted. And you said, oh, sweetheart, that's just wonderful. Thank you so much. How much do I owe you? (laughs) That's no longer a gift. You're trying to earn it. But he offers it to us all. So where are you this morning? In Christ. Do you truly trust in all he's done for you, Paul wants to make sure we do, is before we go on, because he's going to really flesh this fact out across chapter 10 for the present for the Roman church and for us. You no, know, we Anglicans, we can get tied up in the liturgy real easy. I mean, we pray that collect every week. Did you pray it with me this morning? Most of you do a really good job. You really do. But it's easy to get just right caught in the rhythm of things that we say week after week after week and not even thinking about it. And we're very religious people. And that should count for something, right? Wrong. It's all his sheer grace. And it's a gift for each and every one of us. And maybe you were within the sound of my voice online this morning and you've heard this for the very first time. I encourage you to come along with us. Repent. That means turn from living your way to Christ and Christ alone and follow Christ with us. And you know what happens over time? You'll find yourself loving what you used to not like. And you don't like what you used to love <laughs> because that's what the Holy Spirit does as you begin to walk with Christ and you'll find this is life with his people following him together and it's a changed life and it's a game changer and Paul wants to make sure we got that before we take one more step so let's, let's pray together let's take some time and pray and ask for us to really Get the gospel so that we can continue this walk through the Roman road in fullness of life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you laid it all for us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. You poured your Holy Spirit into our hearts, and he's no longer, as Isaiah writes, a stumbling stone, a rock of offense. And that those who believe in him will never be put to shame Lord, we pray that if there be anyone here who has yet to truly trust you, that they would sit down in the the, the imaginative chair of Jesus Christ, fully and completely. We surrender unto you, Lord. We recognize that we're sinners, and we give you our lives to do with as you wish, so that, Lord, we can go forth in this abundant life filled with the Holy Spirit, Use for your glory. For we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.